the way that why questions are accusatory, mm -hmm. but how questions invite people to do the thinking for you and explain that, like the, explain the power of how. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, to use common, Kahneman's phraseology, it triggers slow thinking or in-depth thinking. You know, because it's logistical? Uh, yeah. You know, how, how largely is implementation or logistical? Is another, uh, uh, how's this going to get done? Um, it feels deferential. So I'm going to kill these motherfuckers if you don't give me $20 million right now. And you say, how am I supposed to do that? Go to the bank. Call the president. Do whatever you need to do. This is somebody's life. Give me the $20 million right now. How am I supposed to do that right now? You want me to call the president? You want me to go to the bank? Do they not just keep How screaming? Yes, that right that's now? exactly what I want you to do. All they got to do is come down a little at a time. Now, I'm not resisting. I'm in implementation. And it triggers in-depth thinking. And in point of fact, those are legitimate questions. You know, the, the, ask a question that the, whether the other side likes it or not is actually a legitimate question. Not resisting. I'm asking in a way where I'm deferential. I'm not saying I ain't doing it. I'm asking for your help. Now, how you respond to that is going to tell me where this is really going. You know, there's 93% success rate means 7% of the time it ain't going to go anywhere. This is nothing but bad. I gotta know which one I'm dealing with. And so, you know, my how and what questions early on and occasional, the, the strategical use of why, surgical use of why, I gotta diagnose what I'm really dealing with. And I gotta do it in a way where you're not feeling like you're being diagnosed. But, you know, I, cause I gotta do everything I can do to avoid triggering you, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get a diagnostic on what I'm actually dealing with to begin with. And how do you handle telling people no in a way that doesn't shut them down? Yeah, you know, uh, a friend of mine here in town, Ned Coletti, used to be the GM for the Dodgers. Brilliant negotiator. Good guy. Like him a lot. Ned is still around. I'm still affiliated with the Dodgers. First year he was uh, GM, they went from worst to first. That's a sign of a capable GM. You know, and, and we were talking about this one time, and Ned said that someone had taught him to let out no a little at a time. And I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, you have to be able to say no to people. What your job is to not let them get blindsided by it, where they feel like they were clotheslined and caught off guard. So you let it out a little at a time. And how am I supposed to do that is really a way to get the other side thinking about the difficulty of the situation, about the difficulty of the ask, and it's the first way to Why start letting no out. you just say that's really going to be hard? Further down the line, we're going to get there. But first, I really kind of need, the how question is designed to get stop you in your, your tracks and get you thinking. It's calibrated, which is why we call them calibrated questions, to start to trigger a state change in the other side. Now, we got to let out a little more no, and a little firmer way as we go along 
then we got we we got a whole succession of ways to eventually, ultimately, if forced into it, to say no. Which then also is not no. It's no. But we don't need to go. Like if if you hear no from me or my side, we've been hinting at it for a while. So you're not going to be feel blindsided by it. You, you're gonna yeah, and we're gonna continue to demonstrate collaboration because I you know I don't want to go all the way to no. If we're talking, there's a reason for us to talk. The adversary is the situation. So if there's a reason for us to collaborate and talk, where we can both be better off, I also don't want to let out no too quickly because there might be a better way, and I want to discover that. So let's let me let me let me start telegraphing that there are problems here, inviting collaboration. See if we can tease out a solution before the thing goes down the tubes. Have you ever had a negotiator or a um, hostage taker give you an answer to something that you were like, I actually don't have a rebuttal to that. We should try that. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I was, I, I'm running these scenarios through my head and I'm like, what would I do if they like offered a suggestion? I'm like, yeah, like actually sounds, maybe we should try that. <laughs> like, how do you, because there are scenarios where you end up paying apparently $20 million. Well, we, well first of all, it wasn't the U.S. that paid that or anybody on the U.S. side. So the U.S. would never do that? Uh, correct. US, the U.S. does not pay ransom. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be bait money go downrange. Meaning because, you give them money that you know you're going to take back? Or you're going to trace. Like, like money is ridiculously easy to trace. Like ridiculously easy. And it can be a very smart move. It's like eject, injecting dye into their financial circulatory system. Mm. Where are they buying weapons? Who are they paying safe houses for? They got a larger criminal network. Terrorists are not supported by the Red Cross. They're so, supported by a larger criminal network of illegal arms dealers and illegal this and illegal that. And you want to know who they're buying their guns from. And the best way to find out who they're buying their guns from is to give them some money that you could trace and find out where it goes. Follow the money, as they said a long time ago in, in the Watergate scandal. That's a tremendous investigative tool. Mm. And if you, uh, there was a, uh, in 2000, that was exactly what happened because there was a criminal gang out of Ecuador that had been taking hostages on oil platforms every year at about October. And they were a combination of former terrorists and criminals. And so the third time it went down, a payment was made because if they had assaulted the, the oil platform, they'd only got the kidnappers who were the low end of the food chain. But they made a payment and they ended up dismantling the gang in its entirety and they never hit again. Oh. Over 50 people were rounded up. Because they were tracking the money. Tracking the money. The whole organization was dismantled as a result of the ransom payment. So it became a great way to take out a criminal organization that had been operating completely freely prior to that. And a rescue would have only taken out the bad guys on a platform. It would not have taken out the whole organization. They took the whole thing down, and these guys never resurfaced as an organization again. So going back to the magic words that you use as a negotiator, why is getting them to say no more important or better, much better, if I remember your words correctly, yeah. than yes? Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Um, 
And a friend of mine that I'm flattered that we're acquainted, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Labs podcast. Know him well. Amazing guy. Brilliant neuroscience stuff. Uh, met him for the first time recently. We're sitting down at lunch, and I'm like, all right, so I don't know what the neuroscience behind this is, but people feel safe and protected when they say no. They feel better. They're more likely to collaborate. And then plus what we that's know- so weird. What, the other thing that's crazy that we know for sure is, like when you're exhausted mentally, you could still say no. Mm. But yes is hard. Yes is hard, or even as answering how. Like if, if, you, uh, if, if you're tired, and one of my colleagues did this to me recently, and I could instantly tell the difference. They wanted to follow up with me when I was exhausted, and I knew that if they'd asked me, what are you thinking, what, great question, triggered deep thinking, I didn't have the mental gas in the tank to answer that question. But they answered me a question that was built around no, and I went boom, 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 boom. I laid it all out. And I was like, wow. I don't, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> I just know it does. And we've seen time after time, if I need to close a deal at all, especially if I know that you're tired, instead of saying, do you agree? Do you want to do this? Are you in favor of this? I say, do you disagree? Is this a bad idea? Are you against this? Is this ridiculous? And you'll either go, no, let's do it. Or you go, no, but here are the problems. And you'll lay them all out for me. And feel no obligation which means you're going to lay them out to me honestly. Like if I say, do you agree with this? You're going to afraid to say yes, but here are the problems because you feel that yes is an obligation. And you're going to be worried about digging yourself deeper in by saying anything after that. But having said no, you feel you have no obligation. I think it might be that simple. So you will, you will lay the rest of the stuff out, not being worried about digging yourself into a hole. It's really interesting that some part of our brain is tracking the, even though it's not like obviously a contract, but that some part of our brain is like, yeah, we've just agreed to that. And now I have a sense of obligation and they have the right to like, take me to task on it. It's right. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And we stumbled over that one by, by accident. And it is just the, the good and the bad about getting people to say no is it makes such a huge difference in all interactions that sometimes that's the only thing somebody learns. And we're like, look, there is so much more here. Like, I know you're making a lot more money now. And you're doing better than anybody that you see around you. But you're not doing as good as you could be doing, and you cannot stop there. A lot of people, I see it all the time. They just learn how to trigger no instead of yes, and they're instantly, significantly more successful. And they quit there. They don't keep going. All right. What then, if you were going to bring this all together, if no is that first bit that shows people like, whoa, you can frame this in a new way, what are the, the few key tenets of like, all right, if you had to bestow quickly upon somebody what the core tenets of the black swan way are. Yeah, you know, let the other side go first. Um, and then you know, the cliche, the other side's got to talk five times as much as you. Not twice as much, five times as much. It doesn't mean that you go, uh, that you go mute. You drop in occasionally 
you let the other person know that whatever they're thinking is, it's okay to share it. Like one of our favorite things, you got to have some go-to labels. Go-to labels? Yeah, label is one of our negotiation techniques. Seems like, sounds like, looks like, feels like. No matter what anybody says, you can say, seems like you had a reason for saying that. Like no matter what they say, I hate you and everything you stand for. Seems like you got a reason for saying that. It's disarming. They'll talk with you about it. I want to do business with you and I want to deal with you right now. Seems like I had a reason for saying that. Well, yeah, here's why I want to do business with you. Um, one, one of my son came up with, again, like brilliant guy. We, you know, we would not be our team without him. Clients call on a phone. Say, how are you today? How are you today is a diagnostic. They want to know if they could talk, if you're in a mood to talk about what they want to talk about. Brandon's response is, seems like you got something on your mind. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, because they've been, they've been planning this call. How are you today is not like genuinely how some people really want to know, but most people want to know, are you prepared to listen to what I have on my mind? How are you as a temperature check? Are you in a bad mood? Because I'm wasting my time. You're in a good right. mood? We could talk. And the, the only pushback he ever got on that was he had a guy say, yeah, you know, there's stuff I want to talk about. Really, I want to know how we are today. And so Brandon said, yeah, I'm good. You know, we talked about it. And then they got down to business. So, you know, it, the more you encourage the other side to talk, the more likely it is that you're going to get to this moment of collaboration quicker. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. How do you get something better? You get the other side to talk. You spend a lot less time talking and appreciate that they're bringing something to the table that you could use. The black swan, the tiny little thing that's going to change everything. You trigger that, you're going to make great deals. And that's it. That's We've it. got our, our basic principles. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. All right, last thing, thought-shaping calibrated questions. This is also a new concept that's not in the book. Since we got four minutes left, there's a really good chance I'm going to touch on this one last time at the beginning of session number three, just to reiterate a couple of points. Why is the thought-shaping calibrated question there? Well. Our calibrated questions are continuing to evolve and we've moved away from using questions to gather information and very similar to our phases of no, using questions to shape thought because questions are thought pattern interrupts. If we're going to interrupt someone's thought pattern, we want to be very pointed on the direction we want to take their mind next. And that's where this comes from. And how it's used, as you can see through on the left side there, are phrasing. The first part of a thought-shaping question is going to be exhibiting some sort of tactical empathy and more specifically addressing a negative that may come as a result of what the ask is. And so, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about our three-step process for a hotel upgrade. Not as relevant these days because of the pandemic and people aren't traveling as much. However, travel is going to open up 
And it's a great exhibit of how these thought shaping questions work. And so three-step process, walk up to the counter, you do the first part of your accusations on it, and that, as I mentioned earlier, I'm getting ready to ask you a question that's going to make your day a lot harder. Silence. Wait for a subtle reaction. Usually going to be either a flinch or they're probably going to blink and, you know, look up into the side. Or there's somebody going to look at you and go like, uh-huh, uh, okay, lay it on me. And then the accusations on it that continues after that is, this is going to make me sound like another spoiled hotel guest that is asking for something that they, in fact, do not deserve. Long pause, dynamic silence, shut the front door. And then you drop the question in, the thought-shaping, calibrated question. How much trouble would I get you in with your manager by asking for a complimentary upgrade to a suite? Chances are they're not allowed to give away $3,500 rooms without people paying for them, right? That's an intuitive thing that's easily predictable based on the circumstance. They might get in trouble for giving away that for free because their manager's going to yell at them. All predictable circumstances. We can mitigate the predictable negatives with the combination of the accusations audit, the combination of the beginning of the thought-shaping question, and then using the end of it to drop our asking. I will tell you to this point, personally, I've been batting a 1,000. Chris actually traveled for a keynote recently. He's very safe. Don't worry. I didn't catch COVID. Very safe. Super precautious. You know, took a special airline to get there. He actually, about a week ago, got a great upgrade based on this three-step process. But it's a great way to use the thought-shaping question. How bad would it be if I asked you this? You're trying to get someone somewhere schedule. How much am I going to screw up your week by asking that we talk on Thursday at 2 o'clock? What would happen? What would have to happen to be true to make this work? Address the negatives followed by your ask. Point their thought in the direction that benefits you. This is also a great way to make a demand without being demanding. Demands in question format are much easier for a counterpart to swallow than an outright demand that infringes on their autonomy and makes them fearful that they're losing their positioning. I didn't feel comfortable using the calibrated questions and saying, how am I supposed to do that? So I changed it a little in a way I felt more comfortable. And I would say, like, that's going to be really difficult. And we're going to have to try to think of a creative solution. And then that kind of trying to imply how am I supposed to do that? Um, and I mean, they talk after it and, and give suggestions. So I, I think it's working. It is working. And, and here's, here's the difference between what you did and how am I supposed to do that? First of all, how am I supposed to do that is a phase of no. That is an assertive move. So you want to hold on to that for later in the conversation or the relationship when it's more appropriate. But the way you set it up means that you are 
you're priming them for it. You're lowering the expectation so that if it does become a, how am I supposed to do that? It's not going to be a shock to the system because you've already set them up. So I, I love the way you're playing around with it. Now you're starting to make this stuff your own, which is the ultimate goal is to take these skills and make them a part of your repertoire. You say and do things differently than the way that I say and do things. Troy says them in a way that uh, it's different for me as well. Everybody's got their own spin on the black swan method. Yeah. I I've seen the ability to take someone off their guard and to have them really disarmed and having an open discussion. And then the slightest little thing can throw that back up. And it's not necessarily something where I say something really difficult to you. Just the slight trigger can bring it back up. And I've been listening to other meetings we have with other people at my office that host those meetings. And they have someone completely disarmed. And then they say something like, hey, I've been in the business a long time too, implying you're not the only one that knows this shit. Right. And then when that happens, like, you had them for like an hour. They were just stringing along saying, yeah, I could see that. I understand that. And then you threw that in. You just worked backwards. So I'm trying to use the ways to keep them disarmed as long as possible. And then when I have to get serious, you drop the tone and say, that is something that will have to remain. And then they know like that it's, they're not going to get movement on there because I've only said that with that voice twice out of 50 other times, you know? Yeah. Um, but I've seen people arm up so quick. So I'm trying to be aware of, you can get everything right 90% of the time and that 10% can completely burn you for all that work you put in. Yeah, if 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 yeah, if you're not if you're not careful, that can happen. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to drop the bomb on somebody at some point. You're going to have to draw your line in the sand. And so, when you're switching into that late night FM DJ voice to convey your assertiveness, remember that that assertiveness is the precursor to that should be something from the tactical empathy side of the ledger, as well as the accusations audit side of the ledger. So, you know, I, I'm sorry. I ran it up the flagpole. Nobody saluted. We just can't do that. I'm sorry. I ran it up the flagpole. Nobody saluted. This is going to catch you off guard. This is going to be disappointing to hear. It's going to feel like I punched you in the stomach. We just can't do that. Vaughn, what do you got? A similar kind of a, how am I supposed to do that question? We've been negotiating with the customer for about three or four months. It's a customer we really do not want to work with, but at the price, we would be willing to do so. Uh, so we've been going back and forth and back and forth with them, uh, raised our, price, our prices quite a bit. And then they started uh, to do something very interesting, so picking apart our proposal uh, kind of a la carte. Uh, and that was going over about a two week span, uh, until I went in and I just said, you know, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to let you pick apart my proposal like that? And they went completely dark for two days. And then Friday they said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and sign the proposal. So I, I don't know what the two days was. I don't know why it did that. I don't, I don't know what prompted that, but it really made them make a decision because we, all I, all I said was, 
my email was just, how am I supposed to do that? And I just let them stew for two days and they came back with a signed proposal. That's one of the purposes behind why or how am I supposed to do that or the other phases of no is for them to go back and start to bargain with themselves so that you don't have to. Yeah. It's a thought shaping question. You're shaping their thought. You're engaging the, the, the uh, problem solving or the critical thinking portion of their brain. And so that's perfect. Let them go back and stew for two days. You haven't told them no, and you haven't offered any other solutions. You have in essence told them you go back and figure it out, which is what they did. Basically it's a bear trap at the end of that rainbow if you're on the yes path. And so what's our alternative? Our alternative is no oriented questions. All of you that have read the book have seen this. You have some feel for it. And so real quick, I'm going to share a short story with you. Some of you may have even heard this on Chris's keynotes about dealing with Jack Welch. So Jack's in LA several years ago. While Chris is living in the area, he and I at the time were actually teaching a negotiation course at the Marshall School of Business at USC for the uh, the graduate program. He goes to a book signing to see Jack. Oh, and if you don't know who Jack Welch is, obviously he's an author. We're talking about Chris going to a book signing to get an author from him. But he was a huge businessman. He's not with us anymore, but he ran GE in the 80s and 90s, turned it into one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. He was actually named manager of the century in 1999, which I don't know if there's a higher accolade than that. And he, he developed this rank and yank system at GE and, and was also adopted in many other places in the corporate world, which essentially means you don't hit certain standards, you're gone. There is no second chance. You got a standard to meet. You don't get there. We're going to roll you out and bring in somebody that can't get the job done. So very big guy, philanthropist, author, a lot of people look up to him and, and, and follow his doctrines as a businessman, even still today. So Chris is at this signing. He wants to see if Jack will come teach at his class at USC. Now, if you know anything about book signings, you got about five seconds with the author. Security's job is to keep people moving through. Chris doesn't have time to have a full conversation with Jack. Do an accusations audit. To do a summary, label and mirror his responses. He doesn't have time to do any of that. He's got he's to do a quick hitter, and it's got to be emotionally intelligent, and he's got to do it now. And so he walks up to Jack, and if you've heard the story, you know that he says, is it ridiculous for you to come speak in my class at USC? And as the story goes, Jack gets a very intense look on his face, looks up and to the left and just kind of freezes with this very angry look. In that moment, Chris thinks to himself, I just killed Jack Welsh. He's an old guy and he's so angry at my question that he's actually having a stroke in front of me and he's going to drop dead and security is going to drag me out of here by my ankles and I'm going to jail. And after about 10 seconds of this intense look, Jack looks back at Chris and he says, here's a Twitter handle that's private that only people use internally in my company. My assistant actually runs this as me. I'm gonna let her know that you're gonna reach out to her through this Twitter handle so that we can keep in touch. 
And I think we're supposed to be back in L.A. in the fall. This is sometime in the spring of that year. He says, if we're back in L.A. at that time frame, I will come speak at your class at USC. Now, the long of it is, Jack wasn't, in fact, back in the fall. Very busy guy. Couldn't make it, so it didn't happen. However, he got the commitment in the moment. Why is that? Obviously, the no-oriented question. But what happened? What happened in Jack Welsh's brain in that moment that made it so easy for him to answer? And the crazy thing about knowing the questions, and I wish we could point to a specific brain science study that lays this out. Maybe there will be soon, right, with fMRI machines and this wonderful technology and being able to plug electrodes into people's brains. I'm sure there'll be a study at some point that explains how this works. What we've observed as negotiators, as content experts, as former hostage and crisis negotiators. When you allow someone to say no to you, and in fact, when you aim at someone saying no to you, it clears their thought process. As a lot of you have thrown into the chat, some of the problems with yes, because yes makes people nervous, the instant reaction is, how do I defend myself in this moment? And that clutters up the brain. It doesn't allow us to be cognitively flexible when we're worried about how we have to defend ourselves. And so he confronted Jack over a very specific want, did it without a confrontational reaction, and cleared Jack's thought process to lay out the implementation of how it would work all at the same time with a very simple question. And so you can take our word for it, or you can do what we're going to implore you to do as a result of this class and our next two. Go out and start executing this stuff if you're not already. If you are executing this stuff already, then you should start developing your go-to list. If you listen to anything we've talked about before, you know we talk a lot about go-to labels. The reality is when the heat is on, you fall to your highest level of preparation. And as a result of that, we like to have go-to lists of every single skill that we talk about. And we keep that stuff near to us, right? Laminate it, put it in your jacket pocket, make a list, put it on your desk, we even had a, a good client and now friend of ours sent us a picture of his office. Hey, it's Chris Voss, CEO of the Black Swan Group. Today I'm going to discuss the top four no-oriented questions. You'll learn how to use them so that you can gain the upper hand in any negotiation. Stay tuned until the end of the video and be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Now let's get started. Number one, is now a bad time to talk? Look, this is a great way to get started on relearning a lot of your communication skills into the black swan method. And one of the greatest and simplest ways is to start with no oriented questions in place of a question you ask all the time. 
And the question you ask all the time is, have you got a few minutes to talk? How many phone calls, how many interactions have you started out with? Have you got a few minutes to talk? That's a yes-oriented question. We hate yes. We love no. And this is how you begin to make the transition and begin to take power. And I'll explain to you in a little while how just a switch from yes to no can probably increase your close rate at least 23%. So instead of have you got a few minutes to talk, is now a bad time to talk. Now, there are only two answers to this question. This happens all the time. You only are going to get one of two answers. A person is either going to say, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk. What do you got? And you've got their complete attention, which is what you were after to begin with. Or they're going to say, yeah, it is a bad time to talk, but I can talk Tuesday at 2. If it is a bad time to talk, they always give a great time to schedule a call where, again, you've got their undivided attention. Now, what's the problem with have you got a few minutes to talk? Ask yourself, what do you feel when somebody asks you, have you got a few minutes to talk? All these things go through your mind. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Uh, do I want to talk to you? Um, how long is a few minutes? The point is, and when all these things are going through someone's mind, they're not listening to you. So when someone says, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk to you, they've completely cleared their mind and they're prepared to talk to you. Now, what if they just say yes and they don't give you a good time to talk? I've seen people ask this on LinkedIn all the time. This is insane. How stupid is that? Do you really want to talk with someone when they've just told you it's a bad time to talk, you really want to keep them on the phone with you while they've just said they don't want to talk and it is a bad time to talk? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Speaking of ridiculous, number two, no oriented question. Is it a ridiculous idea? Now we ask this instead of, is it a good idea? We ask this instead of, would you like to? Is it a ridiculous idea? This is a question I use with Jack Welch, very generous man based on my interaction with him, to get him to agree to come and speak at the negotiation course I was teaching at the University of Southern California at the time. I go to a book signing. There are a long line of people in, in line trying to get Jack Welch to sign their book. Jack and Susie Welch are out on a book tour on their most recent book at the time, The Real Life MBA. They're signing books in L.A. I want to go and get Jack to speak at the class. They're hustling people through the line. They're doing everything they can to keep you from talking to Jack while you go through the line for a whole variety of reasons. You've got maybe 30 seconds from the moment that you walk up to the moment they want you to walk away. This is not time to engage in a negotiation or a conversation. I walk up to Jack Welch. He has no idea who I am. I'm just another person at the book signing. And I say, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? Now he looks up and to the left and he gets this hideous look on his face. And he looks furious. And he just freezes with this look on his face. I get horrified. I'm afraid I made him so angry he's had a stroke or something. He's getting ready to die. Finally, he looks down at me and says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a Twitter account that we use to communicate with her. 
I will call her and tell her who you are. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your course. This is one of the great things that a no-oriented question does. It triggers follow-on thought. While Jack was looking up and to the left, he was thinking through implementation details before he responded to me. This is one of the crazy things, the crazy advantages of no-oriented questions. Number three, are you against? We use this instead of, are you in favor of? Would you like to do? Does this sound like a good idea? Are you against? And then name whatever it is. One of the times this worked great was we were teaching the Black Swan team, myself and Brandon, we were teaching a Black Swan method to some people in the healthcare industry. One of the women in the room who worked on behalf of this healthcare company had been trying to get the, a head nurse in a particular hospital to implement a program. The head nurse had been adamantly against it. She was always saying no, 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 no. This is one of the things that's interesting. People get into the mode of always saying no, and it's their automatic response. This is why no warranted questions works. She wanted to test the idea to see if we could get no oriented questions to work. She walks out of the room, she calls the head nurse and says, are you against? And then asked her to implement the program that she'd been trying to get the head nurse to say yes to for weeks. When she simply went from a yes response to a no response, are you against? The head nurse said, no, I'm not against it. And they made the agreement on the spot. She turned around and walked back into the room and said, you guys are not going to believe what just happened. She went out and got an agreement on the spot with a no that she hadn't been able to get previously for weeks. Now, let's do something crazy. Let's put the two of these things together. You'll find that people suffer all human beings suffer from something known as decision fatigue. They can only make so many decisions in a given day. And they're beginning to run out of energy for decision making sometime after lunch in the afternoon and they begin to get drained. So a couple of years ago, I had an intern that only asked me what and how questions because he was horrified at doing something wrong all the time. He was just afraid to make a mistake. And he'd ask me what to do or how to do something in the middle of the afternoon. And I'd be like, I, I, I don't know, leave me alone. And finally I told him, anytime after 1 o'clock on any given day, don't ask me any questions unless the answer is no. And I'll be able to think it through. And then he could ask me at the end of the day, look, I'm going to do this. Do you want me to do this? And I'd be like, no, do this. And I'd give him an answer. I could give him direct guidance straight away. People can answer no-oriented questions even when they're decision fatigued. Now, how can I prove this to you? Several years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Robert Herzevich. Robert Herzevich, very generous guy. Got introduced via an email, mutual friend. We go to lunch, steakhouse in L.A. He happened to have an office just down the street from where I was living at the time. And it was my favorite kind of lunch. Free. He paid. Number one indicator of how generous a guy he is. Number two, I got 90 minutes with him. 
Second indicator of how generous a guy was and is. So at the time, we're getting ready to teach the Black Swan Method at uh, a live training session in New York. I offer him a free ticket. Now, I don't expect him to come. I think he's going to send one of his top guys. I want them learning the Black Swan Method. He looks back at me and says, how many can we buy? Another indicator of a generous guy. So we're going back and forth with his team over how many tickets they're going to buy. Brandon, Brandon Voss, the president of the Black Swan Group, calls me on the phone and says, we can't get a commitment out of Herjavec's people, and we're getting ready to sell the event out. Our tickets are expensive, and they sell out because the Black Swan Method is that good. People want the value. Brandon says to me, if you don't get Herjavec to commit to the tickets now, then we're going to be sold out by tomorrow morning. He's not going to get any, and I'm going to sell the free ticket that you promised him. Now, I'm in Los Angeles at the time. Brandon's on the East Coast, which means he's got a three-hour advantage, or we've got a three-hour disadvantage in Los Angeles, and it is 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, one of the additional problems is we got to get this executed because by the time the business day starts in L.A., it's three hours into the business day on the East Coast. It's almost lunchtime. i got to execute this now. I send an email to Robert Herjavec at 5.03 in the afternoon. Remember the decision fatigue issues? When was the last time you tried to get an answer out of somebody after 5 o'clock at night? I send him a two-line email. Number one, is it a ridiculous idea for you to commit to three tickets to the event now. Second line, are you against paying for them before the business day starts in New York tomorrow? That email goes out of 5.03. I get a response at 5.04. No, we're prepared to commit to three tickets now. No, it's not a problem. My assistant will get back to you within the hour and we will pay for the tickets. The tickets are paid for and it's all wrapped up at 5.23 in the afternoon. From 5.03 to 5.23. No oriented questions to close the deal. Number four, which is also the number one way to restart communications. Have you given up on X and the name whatever it is? Send that out in a one line email with this in the subject and if you put anything in the body, put only that in the body. Send it out as a text message by itself, word for word. This is one of these things in the Black Swan Method that you have to execute word for word. I once had a woman say, you know, I tried that have you given up line and it didn't work. And I said, all right, well, really? Okay, possible. Tell me word for word what you said. And she said, well, you know, I thought the way you 
worded it with a little harsh. So instead of saying, have you given up on, I said, should we give up on having lunch to discuss the project? And I thought to myself, I, you know, I wouldn't answer that either. Here's a side note. In your choice of pronouns, you'll notice that a lot of times people default and say we when they mean you. A couple of years ago, I was talking with Brandon about a project that wasn't getting done. And I called him on the phone. I said, look, we got a problem. And he said, you know, stop interrupting me with that we stuff. You mean I got a problem. Let's be honest. Change your we's to you when you mean you. The other side will actually appreciate it. But this is a common problem that people do in their pronouns. Be really careful. If you mean you, say it. People know the disguised we and they're not fooled by it. It actually makes them feel very uneasy. Have you given up on? Now, context is important. This has to be something that's ongoing. I got to tell you, the Black Swan Group, I get emails all the time. First time email, somebody says, have you given up on doing business with me? Well, since I never started, I couldn't have given up. So I take this as a sign of a manipulative person. Already, I don't want to do business with them. Many times, just to make the point, I'll fire back, yes, because it was so out of context. So this is context-driven. This has to be something that they have been working on for a while. Now, we really got onto this line in a Black Swan team a number of years ago when we were teaching negotiation at Georgetown, and one of the students in a class, and I mentioned this in the book, Never Split the Difference, brilliant student at Georgetown, he's working on a Republican fundraising committee. This was several elections back. I think it was the second Obama election. And they're doing dialing for dollars at night. What's dialing for dollars at night? They call people on the phone. They ask them three yes-oriented questions. Supposed to be tied down, supposed to be the yes momentum, then you ask for the money. Theoretically, the way this nonsensical theory works is that people got to say yes to the last question. Everybody's been hustled and conned by this. Believe me, they don't have to say yes to the last question. The idea that each yes is a micro agreement or tie down is nonsense. However, it's really common in the real world, and a lot of people do this because. Much of the real world is monkey see, monkey do, and this is caught on. Well, he goes in that night, and he changes the yes-oriented questions to no-oriented questions. And the first question was, of course, would you like to take the White House back in November? So he changes it to the no-oriented question, have you given up on taking the White House back in November? They ran the no-oriented script side-by-side side to the yes-oriented script that night in the morning. They had a 23% higher success rate with the no-oriented script, 23%. What happened with the committee that he was working on? They came in that morning and they looked at the results and they said, don't ever do that again. That was a fluke. That's not the way we do things around here. Have you given up on? It's got to be driven by something that someone has been working on. Here's something else that's important for you to remember in this. If they've gone silent on you, if they're ghosting you, and this is the response for when someone has gone silent on you, when they're ghosting you, this one line 
will restart your communication. It will work and it is a one-shot reset. What's important to remember? Remember this phrase. The system you're employing is perfectly designed to give you the outcome that you've achieved. Your communication system with the person who's ghosting you is perfectly designed to get them to ghost you. You cannot go back to the same approach that you had that led up to them going silent on you, them ghosting you. You cannot. I gave this advice one time to a woman who's selling an investment fund, shares in an investment fund. She was having trouble getting a man to get back to her that she wanted to make the investment. And I said, look, send, send this out, send this text out, he'll respond. She's like, fine, you know, he's not getting back to me, but I got nothing to lose, so I'll go ahead and try it anyway. The guy responded, and she went right back into her sales pitch that led him to ghost her in the first place. And that was the last time she ever heard from him. So don't go back to the communication system that you were using. Now, why did they ghost you? Because the communication was ineffective. People continue to communicate if it's effective, if it's working for them, if it's moving their agenda, it's, if it's helping them get to their goals. So one of two things has happened in the midst of this communication. Number one, they've lost all power and influence on their side of the table. They're embarrassed to tell you about it. You have to take that into consideration. Number two, you're not listening. You're pitching, you're selling. If you were listening to them, they'd still be in touch with you. If you were listening to them, you'd have heard the hints, you'd have perceived the signals that they were sending out to you about whatever the problems were, that they're losing power and influence in their company on their side of the table or that you're not listening. You have to take this into account before you restart the communication. The most likely thing for you to do after you've restarted the communication is to summarize the situation from their perspective. You want to reestablish productive communication you want to establish rapport. You want to get them bonded back to you to continue to find out what's going on. you got to get a that's right out of them. Do a great summary. Summarize the communication from their perspective. Summarize the negatives. Stay away from your sales pitch. Stay away from your value proposition. Get a that's right out of them, and you will have fully reset the communication. So you got employees that, again, are not listening to what you say. They're not executing. They're not batteries included, right? They don't take initiative. They essentially wait for the boss to do this thing before they take action at all. And so what do you do? And so some of this, I would say, is going to be solved by an accusations audit. What is causing them to not execute in the way that is most desirable? Some of that's going to be based on what's going on in your environment. And so it might have to do with fairness. It might have to do with they don't feel like they're being put on the right projects or they feel like whatever's being assigned to them is beneath them 
or the way that they're being assigned is they may see it as being disrespectful. It could be any number of things, but going in with an accusations audit of you probably feel this way is going to leave you in one or two places. You're going to say, you know what, boss, that's exactly right. This is the way I wish that it worked out. Or they're going to say, boss, that's not actually it at all. It's this other thing. What does that tell you? You're going to be better informed by leading with the accusations audit because you're either going to be exactly on the money or they're going to say, no, that's not actually how I see it. I see it like this, boss. This is what I need you to know as your employee. Any any additional thoughts that you would add to that specific one there, Derek? Um, setting your clear expectations, summarizing the conversation, and once you have got an understanding slash agreement as to what the execution of whatever it looks like, you're going to want to, you're going to want to rule of three. Uh, there are three types of yeses that you get from anybody and that's counterfeit, um, confirmation and commitment. And so once you've come to that understanding, that's your first yes. You're going to want to hit that yes at least twice more to un to make sure that you guys are on the same page. A yes without a how is worthless. So when they say, yes, boss, got it, I'm on my way, and they go out and execute and they don't come back, it's ultimately your fault because you didn't get the confirmation yes and you didn't get the commitment yes. How do you get those commitment and confirmation yeses? Just simply label, mirror, or paraphrase what has just been said. They tell you, boss, I'm going to have this project to you by next Tuesday. Sounds like next Tuesday is a better day for you. Yes, that's your second yes. Your third yes is going to be so if I understand you correctly, next Tuesday, by Monday, by Monday night, you will have all of this thing wrapped up. And on Tuesday morning, when I come in, it'll be in my inbox waiting for my approval, something to that effect. That's your third yes. And so once you've gotten them to those are public promises and it's very hard, not impossible, but it's hard for people to go back on a promise that has been verbalized, that has been vocally stated. So when they when they speak it into the air. It's, it's like going into a, uh, a tablet with a chisel. Yes, tone is going to be important. Again, circumstance drives your strategy. Generally, your tone in a situation with the accusations audit is, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to have a curiosity tone because the things you lay in your accusations audit are things that you're sure of. You probably feel like you're getting passed up when you shouldn't be. It might even seem like, you know, you've been ignored or you, your, your real talents haven't been taken into account, right? You want to say it as almost a declarative tone. You want to say it as though you know it to be truth. This is how, almost, almost to say, this is how I know you see the world. When you wake up in the morning, the sky looks green, the sun is purple and there's giraffes in your yard, right? That might not be true from your point of view. That doesn't change what they see. So yeah, declarative tone. You want them to know that you see it also. These are also things that I see to be true. When they have a valid argument, but it's not, uh, it's not appropriate for the specific situation, find out What's the motivation? Seems like you have a reason for saying X and find out what their thinking was. 
And then I would follow that with a no oriented question. Would a bad idea, would it be a bad idea if I explained why that's not appropriate in this instance? Again, you're deferring, you're asking permission to give an explanation and then you lay it out and then you lay out what would be appropriate for that situation. How do you lay that one out with another no oriented question? Are you against and then fill in the blank? What is appropriate for that situation? So I would listen to their side, label mirror paraphrase, and then come up with a no oriented question. Are you against whatever it is for the appropriate situation? Would it be a bad idea if I explained to you why this was not appropriate? In regards to um, the survey results, a new manager recently promoted, unfortunately got promoted over someone in the organization that, and that someone felt like they deserved a promotion because they've been around longer. But the reality is this individual got promoted because they're a go-getter, they're crushing it, they're killing it. And so the residual effects of that is they're dealing with a co-worker who is now a subordinate that is now being very disruptive, doesn't want to have a decent conversation, sees them probably as the enemy in the office because they got passed up by this person. And so, Derek, what would you offer this person as far as being able to solve that with this individual who is now a subordinate, who seems to be very obstinate because they feel like they got they got passed up for the promotion that deserved that they deserve? All right. So uh, there's a lot there to work with, uh, but a thumbnail sketch of what it, of what it should look like would be uh, you're going to have to address it. Uh, you're going to have to address the counterproductive behavior because it impacts your credibility as a leader. So you're going to have to have that one on one. How are you going to start that one on one? You're going to hit them with the accusations audit. I know that you uh, you, you don't have. Um, a lot of faith in me as a leader. I know you think that I'm probably not worthy of the position, blah, blah, blah. So you're going to string them out. And there's a lot there that you can throw into an accusations audit. Uh, last week during the meeting, I asked you to introduce yourself and you refused to do so. What caused that? Get the response, response label, label paraphrase, paraphrase response. Again, you're showing that tactical empathy and then you're going to hit them with the with the eye with the eye message to address the counterproductive behavior without sounding accusatory. When you display that type of insubordination in front of others, I feel frustrated because it undermines me as a leader. When you I feel because is a perfect way for you to tell this person, knock it off. I'm not going to stand for it anymore. And then the conversation can be switched into what the, your relationship is going to look like going forward, what the ramifications are going to be if the behavior is repeated in the future. So again, you see the sequencing. Tactical empathy first, your goal and objective last. In the, in the middle of that, we sandwiched in an I message which is used to confront counterproductive behavior without sounding confrontational, without accusing the other side. You're telling them to knock it off without actually using the words, knock it off.
you do not want to refute any of your accusations, right? You don't want to say, ah, you probably feel like I haven't given you a fair shake. But as your boss and having all the other things to consider, you know, what you didn't see was that all this other data that I had to look at in order to make the decision, right? That's that's refuting your accusations audit. So exactly to your point, you never want to put your butt in somebody else's face. I'm sure you feel this way, but this is actually what it is. That's what you want to leave out. If but and or because comes to mind during your accusations audit, you probably just want to replace it with silence. Don't don't say don't let the words come out of your mouth. Don't refute them because it's what those words do is it, it negates everything that came before. Why do we use the no oriented question? We use the no oriented question because it protects the autonomy of the other side. People know when you're driving them for a yes, and most of the time they resent it. The people on the globe are yes, addicted and yes, battered at the same time. We're seduced by the yes. When we hear it, we get all giddy inside. And um, when it's used against us, we resent it because it, we feel like our ability to say no has been encroached upon. But they're very effective at breaking the impasse, helping people to think clearly or getting them to respond to you when they've dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, some examples of no oriented questions appear on the right side of the screen. And these are all alternatives to the yes oriented questions that are on the left side of the screen. Would it be ridiculous? Is it out of the question? Am I out of line? Would it be off putting? Have you given up on? Are you against is also one that I like to use quite frequently. Are you against X? Chris, did you have something or are you spazzing? What happened to my favorite no oriented question? Which is? Is it be ridiculous? Oh, is it be ridiculous? Yeah, we got rid of that. Once we got you through grammar school, we felt it was no longer necessary to keep that up. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's any any question where you're driving for. Yes, a little bit of mental power can be changed to a no oriented question. And I am continually amazed at what people will agree to by saying the word no that they would never agree to or say or say yes to. And, and this is not a heckle, but it's one more I want to thought because this is particularly in, in dealing with the bosses. Guys, we have counseled people to say to a boss, do you want me to fail? And it has broken impasse and uncovered answers and reoriented the negotiations. And no oriented questions originally started, the first trigger point on this came from a woman negotiating with her boss. And she ultimately completely got her way by starting with a no oriented question. So understand, do you want me to fail? Do you want this to fail? Is a legitimate question to a boss who has given you an impossible task. The bad news if they've given you an impossible task, it's an impossible task in point of fact. The good news if they've given you an impossible task, they think a lot of you and they are looking for you to save the day. So no oriented questions with the bosses are very effective, thanks. For sure, good ad. Speaking of the negotiation nine, 
how are asking labels more effective than direct questions in real estate? That's a great question. So an asking label in um, the Black Swan Group, an asking label is essentially picking out the, the emotion, the dynamic, and verbalizing it. It's using your intuition. And in real estate, and this will, this kind of connects to the the unfortunate problem that we have in this industry of getting to yes, where everybody wants yes. So we all just strive for yes. Um, if we change, if we do that two millimeter shift and we instead look for the dynamic and identify it and articulate it and ask, we'll get so much more information back. So if I ask my client, you know, or the other agent on the other side, is a 30 day close okay for you? That's quick. I'm, I'm triaging. I just need to know. I need to get to the yes. Is this going to make the deal? Yes or no? Instead, if I say it seems like your client would like would prefer a quick close, I'm engaging them in a way that, and I, and I need to be aware of my tone there. It seems like your client would like a quick close. I'm engaging them in a way that implies I need more information. And so um, we tell our clients here at the Black Swan Group to start small. So for all the agents listening on this call, you know, this is scary. This is uncomfortable. Start at Starbucks. Don't start with that deal that you want. Start with the barista. You know, it sounds like you're having a rough day today. And just listen. And then when he or she tells you how they're feeling, label what they tell you and just see what kind of information you get back. You're going to be astounded at, by, the, by the information that you get. Then start using it at your open houses. Um, start small and then it's, they work. And here's, here's what I wanted to throw in on top of that with the asking label. The power, <clears throat> excuse me, the power in the asking label is that it, doesn't provoke the same defensive responses that a direct question does. There's a full third of the population that hates direct questions. You want to shut them down, you start peppering them with questions, and you're going to be well on your way to having them close off to you. They feel like they're being interrogated. They feel like they're being pumped for information. So it doesn't take, it's not a heavy lift for you to take whatever, what, when, why, where, how question, turn it on its ear and make it a label. Instead of asking your counterpart agent, why haven't you signed, why haven't they signed the contract yet? The shift would be it seems like there's a pretty good reason as to why they haven't signed yet. It carries an entirely different tone because going back to what she said earlier, this is one of the most emotional transactions that take place in anyone's life. It's replete with negative emotions. Negative emotions impede people's cognitive ability. The more you allow those negative emotions and dynamics to persist, the dumber you're allowing your counterpart to remain. And all of us, regardless of what the conversation is about, we want 
the person on the other side to be as cognitively nimble as possible. So we're doing, we're going, we're working overtime to mitigate those negatives. And part of that process is let's change those direct questions into asking labels. And you'll be amazed at how much more information you get when you ask a question in a label form. And it's not, all you have to do is think of the label. It looks like it seems like it sounds like, and then upward inflect at the end that turns it into a question and you're going to get a more candid and robust response from the other side. Sorry, Marcel. No, I think you actually, you, you brought up a fantastic point. Um, in, Unfortunately, in our industry, there are agents that are under a, a significant amount of pressure and are trained to be assertive. That's how you make deals. You got to get in there. You got to, you know, just, you know, best and final, best and final. I'm not going to answer the phone, whatever it might be. Just get it done. If we address the underlying dynamic, we will, we are invoking reciprocity there it is catching them off guard they're being dealt with differently than they've ever expected or they're used to you're going to get responses and it might be guarded at first but if you continue to use these skills we have a 93 percent success rate in hostage negotiations in life or death scenarios for a reason this transition into the private sector is showing similar success rates because they work because it's based in human nature. And so, um, you know, the power of reciprocity goes a long way and just, just showing some tactical empathy is, is, um, it, it is, it's amazing. Let me ask you, let's start off. You said, uh, there are six techniques that the FBI hostage negotiation professionals use to take it, to take their negotiations uh, to the next level. And one of them is asking, um, asking open-ended questions. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, well, an open-ended question, and it's a, it's a great technique that works with about two-thirds of the people that are out there, um, is a way to take great advantage of the idea, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is to give the other side the illusion of control. If I ask a proper open-ended question, I can really sort of frame it very narrowly, and you'll never feel that. Uh, if I want to confront you about something that you've, di you've done that, that I didn't like, I did this once with a supervisor I was working for. Uh, I said to him, when you originally approved this, what did you have in mind? Which was a subtle way of telling him at one point in time he saw things my way. And now he seemed to be backtracking. But since I put it to him like that, and what he was really after was a feeling of control with me, because there were times when I didn't exactly do what I was told. <laughs> I find that easy to believe, yeah. Which was, was sort of my right. trademark. Yeah. Um, disregarding uh, what people above me said to do, in lieu of what I thought was right, which was always my guiding principle. Um, but he needed to feel like he was in control. And I remember when, when he said that because he, was, he actually was going to take away his approval for the first time, I went to train with the people at Harvard Law School on a Harvard negotiation project, which he had already approved, but I had made him mad a few days earlier, and he was going to withdraw the approval. So I asked him that open-ended question, and he actually he looked at me, and he sat back, and he, I could tell he felt very in charge, which is what I wanted, and then he approved the trip. So giving the other side the feeling that they're in charge mm -hmm. is often what an open-ended question does. It gives, it gives you the chance to tell me things, to enlighten me. 
And there's great power from me in empowering you in that fashion. And you like it, and you'll probably talk to me, and we'll find our way to you giving me giving, giving you the opportunity to give me what I want. Okay, so there's also effective pauses, and, and so l let's sort of go through that, how that works, and minimal encouragers. I'll ask those two things. The effective pauses, uh, pausing, the power of pausing. Right. Well, some people, and it's often a control issue, well, are horrified of being silent. I mean horrified. I was coaching an attorney one time in some negotiations, very assertive female attorney, and talk, 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 because she felt that she needed to make her argument, and as long as she was talking, she was in charge, and if she was talking, the other side wasn't making their argument. She was trying to overwhelm them. And I remember say, saying to her once, did it ever occur to you to not talk? <laughs> okay. And she went silent, and then to her credit, she said no. And then I said, well, oftentimes if you go silent after you've said something really important, then you keep them on the hook. And when you said something really important and follow it up immediately with something else, you just let them off the hook. So the right open-ended question or maybe the right observation, leave them on the hook. Let them break the silence. There's a really good chance they're going to say something you could use. Okay, and, and minimal encouragers. Minimal encouragers, unfortunately, is pretty much what everybody does all the time while they're multitasking. And it's saying, yeah, uh-huh, okay, I'm listening, go on. Now, it's in, in the broader context, it's a very important tool, but not if that's the only thing that you do. So it's very effective when, and you're actually doing a great job of using minimal encouragers with me right now mm -hmm. while we're talking, you're doing it physically. So you can give people minimal encouragers by nodding your head if they can see you, or if they can't see you and they have a lot to get off of their chest, then you, you occasionally, yeah, uh-huh, okay. Let them know you're there and that you're processing and you're still being present. It's, the other side really likes it, which is why so many people do it, but that's their only skill because it's a great way to keep the other person talking when you're not paying attention. Yeah, but I think at minimal encouragers that are insincere would sort of register that way. They do, yeah. and the other side gets annoyed. Right. So ab that's absolutely correct. Chris, would it be unreasonable for you to tell the story about how you almost killed Jack Welch? <laughs> Why? Why no? Somehow I feel compelled to say no. I don't know what it is. Something mystical and magical just came over me because I said that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, um, I'm in L.A. a number of years ago. I'm still teaching at USC, University of Southern California. And uh, Jack Welch, a book signing in L.A. You know, I'm going through the long line of people signing the books. And so what does that mean? By the time you get up to Jack, they're doing everything they can do to keep you from talking to them because they got uh, uh, they got 300 people to get through the line. You stay right. in there and chat for five minutes. Everybody's there for six hours. So there's a million reasons why they don't want you talking to Jack. Now, I'm going to pitch Jack, and I know I've got the opportunity to say one thing, period, period. I can't even introduce myself. I can't, even, I can't do anything. I got, I got time for one sentence. So, you know, I know the magic of getting a no. So I walk up to him. I look him in the eye, and I go, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? 
and and he 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 first he looks at me and he kind of gets a little bit of a scowl and he looks up and to the left and he just gets this hideous scowl on his face. He just freezes. And I, and this was several years ago. Jack Welch, God God rest his soul. All my experience with him, genuine decent human being. Um, and he freezes and he looks furious and then he doesn't move. And my first thought is he, he's so angry he had a stroke and he died. And he's going to fall over dead right in front of me because <laughs> he doesn't move. And then, you know, then I think, all right, so he's not dead, but he's furious. And he's going to have him throw me out. But then after what seemed like an eternity, he looks back at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are, what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak to your class. So not only did he process it, no, but he thought through the next four or five steps for implementation. And it was done. Boom. It, it went that quickly. So, so I was watching, I was watching your reading. I forget which one it was. First of all, thank you for telling that story because I, I probably listened to it three times and every time I listened to it, I could, cause I you know, could see Jack's face just like, right in that moment. And probably his wife next to him, like, you're killing my husband. What the hell is going on here? Um, it's a great example though. So, so many of our clients deal with these situations where they need to ask a better question, right? Something that no one else is asking. Everybody's saying like, Hey, would you like to know the new value of your house? Everybody's saying, Hey, if I can get you a price, would you be willing to X? Right? Like everybody's doing that over and over again. And if you're out there and you're listening, you're doing that and you're getting terrific results, just fast forward on this, this audio message. Otherwise, listen up. You, you once said, I, I want to say there was like four different openings. I think it was to the no question. We, you know, is it ridiculous? Would it be unreasonable? Is that the pattern or were there four specific questions? Well, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's probably about three or four, um, you know, if I may, I'll put in an ad for our YouTube channel. Cause I, I know I've got a video up, uh, the top four, no oriented questions. That's what it was where yeah. I, where I, I kind of walked through it and, and what they are and what's behind them. And, and the other thing to do also is if you just write down, are you against, yeah. you disagree, would it be ridiculous? And then you, you, while you're writing, you're going to think, well, could I say it this way? As long as you're intentionally attempting to trigger a no, yes, you will begin to figure out other great ways of putting it. Now, some of them are context-driven. You know, one of the key ones which is for restarting conversations with people who have stopped talking with you is, have you given up on working with me? Love have you given one. up on Love X, Y, or Z? Now, we find like the, not only will the other person respond, but in a ridiculously short period of time, like that has the highest compliance rate of anything and quick, like as, as a general rule, like when I send that questions, if I'm sending a text, which I, and I know that they're going to see a text right away. Hey, you know, have you given up on the project with the black swan group? I'm going to sit there and wait. Cause they're going to answer within three to five minutes. 
Now, context, situation drive strategy. If this is your opening line, then that question is probably out of context. Good point. And that's a great way for that great question to now create dissonance in me and erode trust. So when I get an opening email, and I know how effective this email is, like, have you given up on taking me on as an intern? Or have you given up on looking at my website? When I've never gone with these people, and I have never started, I either delete that email, or occasionally, I'll respond because I suspect that it's somebody I can't trust. And they will let me know in their very next response, they'll confirm to me that I can't trust them, that they're trying to take advantage of me. Yeah. And that one is so effective that the people that you can't trust have been picked up, have picked up on it. And, and they're, they're looking for mechanisms, not because they're trying to work with you. They're looking for the hacks to take you to the cleaners. So if you get that question out of context, Wait a minute! I never well, started with you. How how could I how could I worry, have right? given up? Yeah. It's a bad sign. Yeah, Chris, I'm sitting there thinking. You ever mess with cold callers when they call you? <laughs> could you imagine calling Chris as a cold call? <laughs> I will. You know, I will tell you. Everybody on my team, when we get hit with a bad cold calling script, right? We'll take a tr- if we have time on our hands. You know, I realize that some poor schmucks probably just starting out. It's a tough job. You know, right. they're, just, they're just doing what the boss told them to do. We'll try to correct them. You know, I'll jump in, and we'll be looking to give a short tutorial. This is, like, a, this you is could, your lucky day. You're going to get yeah, educated. <laughs> you, know, we, you know, we could tell that, you know, you could tell from the tone of voice. Whereas some kids starting out, somebody trying to make a house payment, somebody in a bad place, and they were just taking whatever work they could get. Right. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this guy, I'm going to give this gal, I'm going to give him a break. They probably won't hear me now, but I'm going to say something that, that'll get them to reflect back. So if they're learners, when they move on, then they can get better. It's so funny you say that. I'm shout out to Hanan Levine, if you're listening right now from Orange County, California, who get this, Chris, he cold calls me at my house. He's working for some silly company. I don't know. It was not in the real estate business. And he was so smooth, so authentic, so humble that I was like, tell me more. Like, what? what?" And then I I remember like five minutes into the conversation, literally five minutes in a cold call. I'm a busy guy. And I'm like, this guy is so good. I'm like, where do you work? Like, he's like, he's like, you know, I told you the company. No, no, no. Where do you live? He's like, I'm in like Fullerton. I'm like, listen to me. I don't know what you get paid. But I'm willing to bet I would pay you more. I recruited the guy. He worked for me for five years, crushed it with me, then went into real estate and killed it. So I love that. I love that you would actually take the time. I know everybody's busy, but if you actually took the time to help that person, like that just, that makes my heart sing. Yeah. You know, and, and the word that you used to describe him, which I'm sure is one of the main reasons why you went on, you said the guy was authentic. Yeah. Authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, you know, European accent, European, like, so, so he didn't come across, like, I know a lot of euros that, you know, Germans, Austrians, eh, 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 right? Like super intense. 
And he is, but he was just like, I'm just, you know, letting you know, I'm calling people in your area and I'm not telling you that everybody is signing up for it. I'm just letting you know if this is something you'd be interested in. It was like, and that wasn't even the script, but it was so, it was just so genuine, right? The issue of negotiations is your batting average. You want to raise your batting average. And, and, you know, you asked me for what city am I living in? I, I use, I, you know, I, I moved to Vegas just a year ago. I, I'm not a gambler. I moved here for the tax benefits. And I always use Vegas as an analogy. We don't live in an ivory tower world. There's nothing that works all the time. Nothing. What you need is the best percentage chance of success. These negotiation skills takes you off the table at Vegas where you win 20% of the time to the table where you win 80% of the time. It's your choice which table you want to be at. Now, when one's in a negotiation, you brought up the term anchoring a little while back. I think of anchoring as that psychological mechanism where with the first person that brings up a price, say if there is no price out there, um, oftentimes the end negotiation might anchor back more closely to that first price that was brought up. I don't know whether it's wise for one to go first in negotiation or, or not, or whether it depends. But let me just introduce this. Since we have been talking about the sale of a piece of real estate, Chris, in a sense, between seller and buyer, the seller has kind of already begun the negotiation, if you will, because before that buyer even finds out about that property, I can see the price that it's $500,000. I can see this right. fourplex with eight bedrooms and four bathrooms. So therefore, has the seller already kind of gone first in a negotiation or, or does that even matter or who should go first? Yeah, well, if, if you get something that's priced in advance, it's listed, yeah, the seller's gone first. Yeah. Now, the anchoring question is a fascinating one, and my, my academic brothers and sisters will tell you to anchor, and the top-tier negotiators will say he or she who names price first loses. Interesting, because I thought it would have been to my advantage to anchor and name a price first. It's to your advantage on the deals that you made. What about the deals that you blew away from the table? And that's the problem. And that's why the academics love it and the top tier negotiators. Like I'm horrified that my anchor is gonna blow a deal I should have made. And that's why I don't wanna leave money on the table. I don't wanna not blow deals. And you know, every top tier negotiator, and I can remember you know, over a steak and a scotch, Ned and I, Cluddy and I were talking about this too. And I, it hasn't failed. The people in the business world that are known as the top tier negotiators believe he or she who names price first loses because the other side goes first. That's information. Great negotiators are data loving people. You go first. You're giving me data. What happens if I like the price? Now I'm like, oh, here's, here's, I can take this and I can let you believe you had your way. This is a really good price for me. And if I get you to emotionally dig in on this price, which you accidentally gave me a great price, you don't even know it. I'm going to make this deal. Now, how often does that happen? How often does it have to happen? 
I want to make every deal possible. I do not want to lose a deal over price. Dropping an extreme number drives deals from the table that I should have made otherwise. Now, what we do, as opposed to price anchoring, we do emotional anchoring. I will say to you, look, I I give you my price, but you're going to hate it. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd love to give you price, but it's going to be so extreme that you're going to get angry. You're going to scream at me. I'm scared you're going to get mad. And now, I sh- now I'm going to shut up. So you're going to imagine a price that's worse than what I'm going to throw out. Now, when I do come up with my price, you're not going to get mad at me because by saying, go ahead, go ahead, you know, just tell me what it is. You've already braced yourself for news that's going to be worse than whatever I say. 